0: Welcome to the Inquisitor podcast for our LinkedIn Live. Today, this episode is brought to you in conjunction with my good friends, Karen Mangia and Matthew Sweezy from Salesforce. Karen is the global customer experience and vo- uh, voice of the customer uh, lead. She's a three times best-selling author for which I'm exceptionally jealous and a TEDx speaker and a board member. And Matt is the director of market strategy so effectively, he's a futurist. He looks ahead as to where the direction, way things are moving in the market. He's a Harvard Business Review author. And today they are uh, releasing their latest research, Experience the Shift. Welcome.
1: Thanks so much for having us. We tried to you know, drink lots of caffeine and get in the holiday spirit here. And, and we wanted to make sure your audience is laughing in the background there.
0: Excellent. Apparently, my singing is awful. Thank you, Thomas. Go to hell. so would you mind just giving 30 seconds background on each of you so Karen uh, why don't you go first
1: the true north star of my career has been spending time with customers whether that was in sales and sales leadership or in strategic alliances and then for this last chapter of my career lots of time understanding what customers care about helping to build a compelling vision for the future with them and releasing some thought leadership about the new playbook for the future of customer success and customer experience.
0: I've got to say, that fills my heart with joy because God knows there is a desperate need. I'm of the view that sales and marketing are in desperate need of a bloodbath. So I hope this is the first bloodletting.
2: Matt, 30 seconds. Yeah, so I focused on the future of marketing and have for most of my career, uh, whether that's been from helping launch brand new technologies in the MarTech space, such as one of the very early employees at a company called Pardot and wrote the first book on marketing automation. Um, And really kind of now working more on forward-looking topics such as experience, outcomes. I am really kind of trying to help guide some of our largest customers to a better success in the future.
0: Excellent. Okay, so let's deal with the gnarly question of why so few organizations really understand who their customer is. Matt, why don't we start with you? The simple answer is probably because they don't ask enough questions and they don't really talk to their
2: customers. I'd say that may be probably an underlying statement for a lot of issues, but one of the big underlying factors of current today is that that consumer has changed so much in such a short period of time. If you didn't have very refined practices in keeping up with that customer, Um, you just lost and and you missed out on who they are and how they've changed and you're not able to keep up
0: currently. Okay. So Karen, tell me this. In broad terms, where are we headed with this research? What what's the outcome that we're aiming towards?
1: A new playbook for success. And you know, playing on what Matt said there, the only thing that's shifted right now is everything. And what that means is not only the definition of who your customer is, but to your point, Mark, is how you're trying to go to market. And this gives us a great opportunity to take a pause and assess not only who is our customer now, but what experience are we trying to deliver, for what purpose, and then really get smart about where and when we plug in to listen to them, to connect with them, to do co-creation, and really go build this new playbook to differentiate on that experience going forward.
0: So before we get into the weeds, tell me a little bit about the research base so that people understand how you came to these conclusions. Matt? Yeah, so
2: we set up a qualitative uh, research study where we interviewed a bunch of customer experience officers and chief customer officers um, from a wide range of businesses. Uh, And through those interviews, we are really able to uncover a lot of amazing insights, um, but really was just sitting down and talking to a lot of very progressive business leaders.
0: Okay, and so one of the principal themes that um, I see in the research is that this move away from the utterly pointless uh, net promoter store. I know that this has been the holy grail for so many marketing people and uh, HR people for years. I just never resonated with it. And this move to uh, time to value, Do you mind defining what you mean by time to value first and then explain why net promoter score is so last year?
1: Well, I think about it this way. I mean, imagine if I asked Matt today, Matt, do you intend to brush your teeth, floss, and eat vegetables? Do you intend to be healthy today? I
2: want
1: to be a healthy person. I mean, the likelihood is he'd say yes. I mean, your guys in the balcony might say yes, too. And the reality is there's always a difference between intention and action. And the challenge I find with Net Promoter Score is just because you intend to do something, even as a customer who might love your company and be a very loyal customer, doesn't mean you actually do. So what we want to do is shift measuring and understanding intention to measuring and understanding action, outcomes, what we're going to deliver. And the reality is when you look at something like time to value, It speaks to not only actions that get taken, but multiple opportunities to course correct before it's too late. I mean, who among us hasn't gotten one of these wonderful survey scores only to have a customer not renew a few months later? So a much better indicator of health is, are we delivering the outcomes that you're looking for at the rate you're expecting with the time and resources that you expected to invest?
2: And I want to add on real quick to a comment that we heard. So one of the, the quotes from one of the chief uh, experience officers was, we have happy customers leave all the time and we have unhappy ones stay. The differences are the outcomes that they receive. And I think when we start to really you know, pull all this data back in and really kind of think about this, I, I don't want anyone listening to think that experiences don't matter because they do. It's just we have the ordering role. We thought experiences were the end all and be all. And what we really found in this research were outcomes are the actual goal that people are buying, right? That's the thing that they want experiences are the methods that we use to help them achieve that goal and then time to value is how we should be measuring the achievement of those goals so they all work together it's not that we are completely throwing experiences away we're just rather saying that's the method not the goal
0: i'm always very rude about our species because i think most of us are dumb as a brick um but how is it that it's taken you uh, you doing this research uh, for anybody to come to that conclusion because no one in the history of humanity has ever woken up and said, you know what I really want? I want a CRM. Um, <laughs> this doesn't happen. Everybody it's always bought outcomes. Why is it that we've had to, to go off and spend, you know, spend time and effort and money putting together this research to come to a blindingly painfully obvious conclusion?
1: I think it's worth trying to really get visibility. And and what takes me a step further on that net promoter score question is it really gets to the underlying challenge of when you win as a company with a customer, do you know why? When you lose, you know why? And do you know it to the degree that you can repeat it, scale it, and sustain it? And so I think with CRM or anything else that we're trying to get to is a degree of predictability Uh, that everyone and their behavior is going to fit into a matrix. If only we do these like nine things perfectly in order and track them, it will get to this magical outcome. And, And the reality is I think we've got to get underneath more of the perception and get behind that intention. Matt, you were going to add something as well.
2: Yeah, I, I think that so you know the research clearly shows that these organizations have been on a progressive path for many years. Some of these companies have had full executive buy-in to a to, to reorganize their or, or their organization to a customer-centric organization for upwards of six years, starting from the highest level all the way down. I mean, putting in place um, new types of internal processes, you know, new technology, tooling the, the whole works. So. The question of why is it taking us so long is I think we had to take that step first to prove the value of an experience. And once the organization can prove the value of the experience, then they can understand the delivery of the outcome. So I think one has to come before the other. And a really interesting observation is why did it take us so long to even realize experiences matter? I mean, the experience economy came out in 1999. It was published by Josephine and James Gilmore, 1999. Companies have only been going down this for three to six years at a corporate directive, right? So that's 14 years after this was published as a best-selling book from Harvard Business. So it takes a long time for these things to kind of catch up and change and kind of, you know, permeate and kind of come out to the best practice.
0: So I have to then ask the question, what is it about executive leadership that makes them so myopic and basically stupid? Given that this information has been out there for a decade and a half, it's not like uh, human beings have massively changed in terms of their appetites or drivers. How come organizations are still being led by donkeys who allow this to continue? Why is it that they don't have the spine to just confront it, Karen? There you go. I'll I'll throw you into the minefield on this one. (laughs) Let's
1: do it. I'm glad I had that last sip of coffee before our conversation. Matt's (laughs) pulling up. He's getting ready. Here's what I would observe. The system is stacked against senior executives. And here's what tends to happen in most companies. First of all, senior executives at many points along the way spent time with customers. And so what happens for all of us is we work with a legacy knowledge that we believe we know our customers even though for many senior executives, less than 10% of their time is actually spent in front of customers, staying current on what's happening and continuing to build and deepen those critical customer relationships. The second piece is, we love to give executives good news, right? So if you start to manage your business by a statistic or a score, rather than these stories, you tend to get a little bit insulated and you start to get good news. And in fact, I'm reminded of a CEO of a B2B organization that, you know, grew her business. She was wildly successful. She had a customer listing and measurement program in place. Uh, and on a Friday, she received an email from her largest customer that represented over 50% of her bookings. And it just said, you're fired. Don't bother showing up on Monday. And she was shocked and panicked, of course. You know, she's she's stalker calling the CEO. He's not responding. And the reality is even though those systems were in place, she had become reliant like many people do because you get busy fighting other fires on a historical relationship and the customer voted with their wallet and not with that survey score. And, you know, it was a wake up call moment for her that something was broken in that information, in that conduit of how the stories about customers came to her and her role in relating to that information. So I think you have to have an appetite to challenge, is what I'm getting here, representing the reality of the experiences our customers are having. And, and
0: I see this question, which we should address. Just very quickly, who should challenge whom?
1: Well, I, I think you know, there's a place for executives, you know, to, to challenge their team to say, is this the complete picture? Right. I think it's also a remarkable opportunity for standout leaders to say, there's another way. Some very smart leaders of customer experience and success teams literally take some of those call recordings and bring the recording of the voice of the customer into that C-suite meeting or read out on the trends of scores. You know, bring your customers to life. And what a remarkable way to, to differentiate and to bring some reality into the conversation.
0: One of the best examples of this is Amy, Brown's at, uh, Amy Brown at Authentics. And she brings audio montages of both good and bad customer feedback i think and um, often you'll find that uh, executive boards their jaws will drop because they cannot believe the horrors that they're perpetrating on their customers yeah. but what i think is also really important is that the executives are out there marketing i mean the number of times i asked marketing people when was the last time you spoke to a customer oh we don't do that i mean how on god's earth can you possibly run an effective marketing team Part of the problem is, I think, that marketing is often seen as a means of uh, filling the top of the funnel with leads. But that isn't marketing's primary function. Marketing's function is to put profit on the bottom line. And that encompasses the entire customer journey um, from the first time they ever come across your brand to the point where you're putting them in their grave and then you're selling to their children and their grandchildren. So why is it that so few people within the organization are actually talking to customers, Matt?
2: It's, it's legacy issue. I think one of the other things that we have to keep in mind is market conditions. Um, we have essentially moved from, and not just we're not just talking about the pandemic market conditions. We're talking about the last 10, 15 years. We've entered a radically new point in time. Right? You know, the, the head of the World Economic Forum made the, the beautiful statement of, it's not the biggest fish, it's the fastest fish. To move into these, to to recreate your business into a modern, efficient, agile, nimble machine is very, very difficult, especially if you're a legacy business, right? So if you've existed for 100 years, hell, if you've existed for 20 years, you're going to have a technology lag, you're going to have a process lag, you're going to have a lot of things that have to be updated before you can start, you know, really getting on these progressive topics. I mean, just look at how Tesla competes with Mercedes-Benz. Tesla doesn't have any of the legacy issues of historical car companies, why they don't operate like a historical car company, but then how do the historical car companies operate? All they can do is simply renovate one step forward, because to leapfrog to go to where Tesla is is such a massive undertaking. It's almost nearly impossible for that legacy it, for that legacy company to take on. So I think it's you know why are some of these things taking so long? Why are executives so slow to adopt? Because it's just the change management issues. We all know it takes a long time to change legacy process.
0: How much of this do you think, and because I know a lot of the research talks about the employee experience, one of the things that I've observed um, in my three and a half decades is that compensation drives behavior, but so often the compensation drives the wrong behavior. The compensation of investors drives really terrible decisions in terms of leadership and management. Uh, the compensation of executives drives really bad management decisions, and the compensation of salespeople drives transactional behavior. And you know, I, I know in the research you talk about the uh, critical need to build trust, to go narrow and deep, to really understand who your customer is and who they are not, and make sure that that information about customer and the insights that you get is shared. So. Help me understand why that isn't happening in the the name.
1: Well, so first of all, Roderick, I see your comment there and I, I resonate with what you're saying. So many times we're at a surprise party, right? We think we're going into a renewal and suddenly the customer is giving us the news that we're about to break up. And I kind of think about it. We all have these relationships that sort of come to an end or a pause. It's rarely truly a surprise party, right? When we start to look back, there are little signs along the way. I think the challenges a little bit, Marcus, of what you're saying, which is we're not connecting that entire value chain of all those little signals along the way. And maybe it's an unhappy employee supporting that customer. Maybe it's too many support cases. Maybe it's you know time to value is happening too slowly. There are usually little warning signs. I think the challenge is we struggle to connect them quickly enough to take action. And, and actually, one of our colleagues has done quite a lot of work on employee experience. Matt, do you want to talk about the, uh, the Forbes research on employee experience?
2: Yeah, so when we talk about experience, I think one of the biggest issues that people have is they have a, a, an association with the word that is not what we're just dis- what not what we're discussing, right? So when we use the word experience, Marcus, you made a really good point. We're talking about a cohesive and connected experience across an entire customer journey. That is capital E experience. Within that, there are two sides to that experience. There is the customer experience of what they see, feel, think, and do. And there's also what we experience as the organization. And too often, we don't put those employees in that function, in that equation. What this research actually found was organizations that focus on employee experience first and let that drive customer experience, see the greatest revenue growth. In fact, they grow 1.8x more than those that don't. And what we need to realize and what we also found in this research is some of these companies that are, you know, we saw one company was able to reduce time to value by 65%. A lot of that had to do with employee experience of creating new tools to essentially make it just as convenient and easy for that employee to service that customer as it is for that customer to do business with the company. So when we start to rethink this idea of experience and then start to put employee experience on that customer journey, what is the employee experience in this moment? How are we creating a better employee experience for them? When we start to rethink that, we then start to go back and say, wow, what is HR's role? Now it's EX. Right? So it's all the
0: traditional HR plus EX. And that's a whole well, new world. Again, I'd like to build on a couple of these points. Uh, Michael Puck at uh, UKG referred to a study of the S&P 500 between 2010 and 2016. And he identified that companies that had highly engaged employees had 430% higher profit for employee, 290% higher revenue for employee. Turnover was 40% lower, individual productivity was 20% higher, and share price growth was over 300% higher per annum, compound year on year. Now, when you add to that the fact that in many organizations, there are all these silos and disconnects between different departments. I refer to a fascinating character that I interviewed, Patrick Lindquist. He is the chief head of innovation for the city of Helsingborg in Sweden. And by 2023, they intend to be the most innovative city in Europe. And he has created a post, which is called, I can't possibly translate, uh, say it in Swedish, but, but they're called gap managers. Their job is to manage the gap between the silos. Now, what I'm fascinated by is how many organizations have allowed themselves to atrophy through these silos, through these fiefdoms. And what they've done is they've uh, created these hierarchies and this political landscape. And one of the things that I was really excited about um, in terms of your research is to move away from the pyramid model to circles with the user and the customer at the heart of everything that you do. And everything explodes from there. So Karen, talk to me about that, because that to me seems to be a massive shift, but it is difficult work. And I'm not sure that many leaders are up for that.
1: It is difficult work. And this is where the focus on outcome can help. And what was so fascinating as we were talking with these experienced executives and looking ahead to the future, it is this series of interlocking parts. It begins with a great executive sponsor with a vision to operate differently, to build and execute this new customer experience playbook and outcomes lead to an opportunity to rethink metrics and break down silos in the organization. I mean, think about it, You know, if before we each owned an organizational or departmental goal or metric, and now what we own is a shared outcome that we've co-created with customers, it gives us a rallying point to work together. It predefines how we win together. And in order to really maximize that opportunity, get to that time to value, it means we need a different organizational shape. We have to be more agile. We can't be waiting for this hierarchy and pyramid of decisions to trickle down so that we can go serve our customers. And, And Matt, do you want to add on more about this pyramids
2: to circles organizational shift? Yeah, it's extremely difficult. You're talking about a complete organizational shift. And if you think about traditionally why organizations were set up in silos, it's because we knew the most efficient way to build something was an assembly line. Take it from one group, give it to the next, they add their part, give it to the next, they add their part. That's how we structure businesses. As we know, assembly lines are no longer the fastest method of creation. Agile methodologies are now the fastest methodology of creation in our current world. That's a massive change in business culture of thinking about how do we move from Uh, simply creating products from an assembly line to reorganizing concentric circles along that customer journey and owning moments rather than owning departments. And inside of that, we're also starting to see experience design guides as being one of the critical factors. We have an outcome that gives us an objective measure because MPS is good, but it's subjective. Outcome attainment is, uh, is very objective and clear and definable. Then you have these experience guidelines, which now Align all of these different groups together. So you've got IT, you've got marketing, you've got service support, you've got your partners, your customers, all collaborating together uh, in these key moments. And it's it a big change, and that's why it's going to take a lot of time.
0: I think Chris Westwald, uh really asked the killer question, which is how do we mind the gap? How do we manage to conquer those fiefdoms and close the spaces between the silos? And I think one of the areas that we have to look at is, creating a compensation scheme on the basis of the contribution that individuals, and Matt touched on it there, about owning the moment, and the contribution that individuals and teams have on progressing the customer towards the outcome that you and they have co-developed. And you mentioned co-development, and certainly from my experience of working with companies, particularly selling complex uh, solutions is that unless the customer's fingerprints are all over the solution, chances are you're going to meet a hell of a lot of resistance. You're going to come up against politics. You're going to come uh, up against incumbents. And 60% of buying cycles uh, based on corporate visions research end up in the status quo. Now, that's an awful lot of money that you've thrown at marketing, resourcing, sales, pursuit, account management, and all that kind of stuff that is just thrown up against the wall and it just bounces off. So in terms of putting together a team in order to drive the right behavior through compensation and what you measure, what advice would you give? I know you talk about a success planner. I'm curious about their role in that whole process. There's a
2: lot here. So first off, Marcus, I do want to push back on one of the comments of, compensation must be a thing because what we found was, it's not necessarily compensation for some of these roles, rather they need to know their impact on these actual metrics. So one of the executives said, you know, if you want to change how a person thinks about a moment, you have to be able to attach the outcome of their actions back to them so they can see what effect they had on that deal, right? Did we help, did we create a better outcome? Did we create a better experience? And if that person isn't able to see that impact, they're disconnected, And they don't necessarily feel the ownership of that moment. So I wouldn't say it's necessarily making sure they're compensated, just that there's transparency in what things they do and how those have a positive or negative impact on those experiences that that they're creating.
0: I think what you touched on there is that if you create the right employee experience, people feel the work that they do is important and meaningful. And they get recognition, which again, for many people, is important, not for everyone, But then what you get is massive discretionary value, discretionary contribution. And that is where you see the significant difference between companies with highly engaged employees and those who are just mildly engaged or actively disengaged, throwing spanners into the works. So building on that, Karen, do you mind talking about this concept of the success planner? Well, what's
1: so critical, it ties together a couple of things. You know, first of all, you were talking about this gap. And what we see so frequently is that pre-sales promises don't always translate to post-sales results. And part of that is if, if you have a long implementation cycle or a complex value chain, you develop stranded value along the way. You know, you start to lose visibility to those original promises and business cases. And the reality is there are very few organizations as someone who's accountable for seeing that customer through the contract signing into that world where you get to start to capture value. So leading organizations are trying to work through creating that ownership, creating a guide, creating someone who has visibility and along the lines of the transformation that we've been talking about, you know, we all feel greater ownership of what we help to create. So when someone like that customer success planner is engaged in the pre-sales process and win, you know, they, they feel more accountability and ownership, right, for developing that success and getting to that value in the post-sale world. And, you know, we start to talk about silos and it's very easy for that to happen if different teams design the solution, sell the solution, implement the solution. And so it's designed really to help bridge that gap and to navigate what I refer to as the bathtub effect, right? We win together, we're at a high, we're picturing success. This is going to be the best relationship ever. We go through this cycle where it drops off. It's not going well. It's taking more time and money than expected. And then we begin this long and difficult climb out to the, the other side. And that customer success planner is really about collapsing, shortening, and eventually eliminating that gap.
2: To add on to that, you know, one of the questions was, you know, how do we move? How do we close that gap? And the success planner, as we found, was a specific tactic. Um, but what we also saw was there were definitely maturity steps. I think step number one was essentially just co-ownership of basic metrics. I'm just saying, okay, silos, let's just let you co-own a metric to start. And then it's a really good starting point of how we start to close the gap. Um, so it doesn't have to be a massive overhaul, but there are def- definite steps. Um, so one was, you know, essentially co-ownership. Then two was we start to then have, you know, we saw um, an experienced council, you know, be created that essentially was an internal working group that then helped lead, which had sub- subgroups, which owned these moments, which is Chris is asking about. So. There's lots of different steps. And, you know, we definitely wrote a lot of this stuff and have created a deck that all of this information will be in. We're very happy to share that with everybody as well. And we can put the link up um, for that deck for everyone to, to access and kind of be able to work through all those processes and steps.
0: Building on this, then, I, I mean, you, you talk about the success plan of being involved in the pre-sale stage, but what about the post sale stage? Because once you've got a customer you want to keep them. And I I look at a program like T-36 in Microsoft, which is a fascinating and very clever program, where you get paid a a bit for bringing someone on as a new logo, but you get paid way more for them utilizing your product fully. You get paid way more for them expanding into the full range of your portfolio. And you get paid way more when they renew. Because I think the emphasis of So many organizations and the obsession with new business and winning new logos is driven because they're so terrible at keeping them. You look at the churn rate of some organizations, it's obscene. And particularly in the COVID period, what you have to be focused on is keeping customers. If you're not doing that, you're out of your mind. Depending on which research you read, it's between 6 and 21 times more expensive to acquire a new customer than keep one. Why the hell aren't you focusing on making sure your customers are delighted with what you do? You're still relevant. And because you're listening to how their circumstances are changing, you're adapting to meet them where they're going to be. That strikes me as far more be- a better business sense, doesn't
1: it? Well, yes. And mm-hmm. the research, absolutely, of organizations thinking about how to be purposeful in selling across the portfolio to keep their existing customers right it's a strategy to get to more of that value into those outcomes together it's also a sticky retention strategy right the more invested you are in our relationship the more that you have with us the less likely you are to leave in the future and you can still get that benefit of making the net new sales right now
0: so this also then comes to this whole piece around mutual accountability and really partnering with your customers, because you don't do something to the customer. I think my definition of partners is you help each other get better. And that means you hold each other to account. When your partners are messing up or they're struggling, you help them. You hold up the ugly mirror. And sometimes you have to confront them. And it means you need to establish right from the off the kind of relationship where you're allowed to confront one another. And you do it in a grown-up, adult-to-adult way. But I think one of the things that really depresses me is how often organisations are afraid uh, to have frank and vulnerable conversations with their customers and um, with their partners, because this isn't just about vendor selling to customer. Um, More often than not, there is a third party or several third parties involved, Um, and that's where I think you need that mutual accountability, and you have to co-create, and you have to hold each other to account on a regular basis. So Matt, your thoughts on that? Yeah, so that leads us right into some things that we
2: found in the research, which were really fascinating. And this idea, so first off, co-creation. So if we talk about what are future business skills, I think there's a couple that we all know they are pretty obvious. One is agile, agility, agile best practices. Organizations have to use agile if they want to be able to, to transition into this methodology. Two are methods such as like you know, experience design, human-centered design, And the one that we really saw in this research was co-creation of organizations looking across the entire customer journey and changing the conversation to, how do I do something on my customer in this moment, to how do I work with them in this moment? And when we change that mindset and look at a very specific tactic, which is quarterly business reviews, we saw some very interesting things happen. So traditionally, a business review is going to happen every quarter. It's going to be a presentation based off of what have you used, what's the penetration, some type of an upsell methodology, you know, just kind of a it's standard practice. What we saw was when people shifted to the focus of outcomes, and even when they were able to break outcomes down into multiple smaller outcomes that then build into larger outcomes, the quarterly business review changed from a quarterly time basis to a milestone basis. And these long presentations moved to one page business plan. So you now start to have much more frequent work with the customer where, to your point, The partners are making each other better, right? The customer success or customer experience side from the business is guiding the customer as to how to achieve, what do they need to do, keeping them accountable. And so they're working together in a very specific methodology that's much quicker, much faster and producing much better
0: results. Something that's really struck me and since I wrote uh, Making Channel Sales work, it's really got me thinking around the importance of collaboration. I think our success in the future will depend on our ability to collaborate. And if I look at technology, unless you are a sales force, but even you guys, you are just one component of the sales and marketing stack. Um, And if you look at cyber, they've got password managers, they've got VPNs, they've got firewalls, they've got stuff for email, um, and you could be one of 12 or 20 different pieces of technology just in the (laughs) security stack. I think what we need to also be thinking about is how do we play nicely with our competition? I I, I look at how Microsoft is playing with Google, despite the fact that they compete, and they're playing with Amazon, despite the fact that they compete. Um, And we really have to get a lot smarter, because at the end of the day, the customer doesn't care who delivers it. What they want is the outcome. So how do we get our egos out of the way?
1: I actually dedicated an entire chapter in Listen Up to that topic. You know, how how to take ego out of the conversation. And it goes back to something we were talking about earlier. There is something magical about hearing directly from your customers and partners. You know, statistics will, will capture minds and sometimes budget, but stories capture hearts and are really what move and transform companies. And when we start to feel this conflict, I mean, you know, I would offer a couple of things. First of all, When was the last time the people who are making the decisions sat down and had a conversation to ask some of these questions about how could we do it better? What's the biggest challenge, you know, that we're trying to solve or could solve together right now and really hear what's being said. I think the second piece of it is who's in the conversation. You know, I think back to the first sales call I ever made. I mean, it was a disaster. I printed out like a template, right? I I handed it out to the customer and then I read it out loud, every word, every word. It was beautiful. I wish there were video, uh, not just because of my suit, but also from when I spit out the really, really horrible coffee that they had in the room. But, (laughs) But it was strange because I won that deal. I won after reading it to them. And the only reason is I literally had a beginner's mind. I had asked lots of questions and I had never heard the answers to any of them before because it was my first customer meeting. So how do we bring that level of curiosity? And sometimes in what I see uh, in some organizations and Lincoln Electric comes to mind, they have a whole program where they take people whose job on a day-to-day basis is not spending time with customers and then put them in the customer conversations to get curious and ask questions because they see and hear something different. So it's not just you know who's at the table in terms of the customer, the partner, the competitor, it's who from inside the company that could hear and see things in a new way that could be there participating as well.
0: This, I think, is really key because this is where I think product managers and product developers really need to be part of that conversation as well. One of the freshest minds in sales at the moment is a guy called Bob Mester. And Bob was apprenticed apprentice to W. Edwards Deming uh, when he was in his 20s. And uh, he's a product designer. 5,000 products out in the marketplace to his name. And he had to learn how to sell because people... A lot of product developers, like a lot of uh, founders and entrepreneurs, my pal, Jerry Lemberg, claimed to be one of the four original founders of Intel. And uh, he worked for KB, and he was the first investor in Microsoft and in Oracle. And he described entrepreneurs as people who produce elegant solutions to problems that don't exist. Mm -hmm. Now, I think very often, companies that don't listen, that are not spending time at the coalface, are missing out. The people that they're not listening to are the customers that are genuinely pissed off, that have fired them, that have left them, the ones that are on the verge of leaving, the angry ones, because I think those are often your best source of innovation. Yeah,
2: and we found that specifically in the research market. So like, thank you so much for teeing that up. But back to this point of unhappy customers, when we talk about one of the biggest issues that companies face at this current point in time, it's innovating fast. Everyone had to pivot whether it's 100 or 360 degrees overnight, right? 10 years of innovation in 10 months. One of the best sources of innovation of moving quickly we actually found was unhappy customers, right? Here's a quote from one of the people we interviewed. Well, when we do the regular, we have our um, customer advisory board, but it meets once a quarter, we get insights back from that and that can help drive product direction. But when we really peel back the layers, let's think about this. It's once a quarter, and it's talking to somebody and then telling us something in return. That's good and it's valuable, but then here's the alternative. What they said is we actually have found that working with unhappy customers is a much faster way of innovate because they've already made an investment in us. They are already a partner and they are willing to test new ideas to solve their problems. So they become the perfect guinea pig for innovation, right? So when you change that dynamic, you can now find innovation in a much faster way Going back to the notion of co-creation, we're now using unhappy customers to co-create better solutions that then become products for everyone else. Right. So there's a lot of big, fascinating things moving forward. And I also wanted to add in, I had myself on mute, so I couldn't add it under the end of Karen's comment. When you start talking about the voice of the customer, making sure all these different people's voices are consistent and connected and collected, that was one of the other big findings was when we start to look at how many different voices of the customer an organization has, every department has multiple different voices of the customer, whether that's sales feedback and objections, whether that's service and support calls, whether that's marketing research and persona-based profile, that's very rarely connected into a single profile. That's very rarely connected across the organization. And when we want to start thinking about focusing on these moments we need to make sure that we have all of that information. There is a clear picture, a connected picture of all those voices of the customer, so that each one of those concentric circles can operate and have the same visibility and operate in an a efficient manner. Um, so, there's sorry, there's a lot to drop in on that, but I just got so excited when you brought that up because it sounds we really
1: Well, and Tamara's comment, and I apologize if I said your name incorrectly, that that just scrolled off the screen is so accurate. You know, so many times. We're taking a single listening channel as a representative voice of the customer, and it may just be one segment of your customer base, you know, one size of customer. It may be the people who use your products but don't buy them or influence decisions, you know, critical to hear from all aspects, including, to your point, Marcus, customers you've lost. And Greg, I I love your comment here about painful to discover that we're wrong. And I think that's one of the challenges, right? Sometimes we'd rather, uh, you know, you, you could have heard that saying, would you rather be right or be happy? And I think a lot of times we cling to being right. Like we want to know what customers want and we are going to give it to them, right? <laughs> and it sometimes takes that moment of saying, I'm willing to reconsider, you know, why not?
0: One of the most um, useful tactics that I used to teach my clients when uh, I was in the training business is a recon call and it's an agenda. Remind me or remember. So remind me what we agreed to do between now and the last time we spoke. Evaluate. Now this is where you invite negative feedback. Karen, I'm interested in the bad, not the good. You can hit me with both barrels. I'm not gonna take offense. The, The purpose of this conversation is for us to improve the value and the service that we deliver to you so you get the outcomes that you want. And this plays really neatly to what Bob Master says. No one buys your product, they rent it. And they only rent it for as long as it's still relevant and it's delivering the outcomes that you want. The C stands for change. So what has changed for the better? This is them selling to you as to what the value is that you're bringing. O stands for opportunities, So where are the opportunities for us to help you over the next 30, 60, 90 days? Where are the opportunities over the next 12 months that we need to get ahead of? And what are the next steps? And having that conversation with your fewer, more focused customers on a fortnightly basis, at least with one key person within the organization. It could be an executive. It could be C-suite. It could be someone in operations. It could be someone in marketing. It could be someone in the legal department or finance. That's so that you understand what it's really like to be on the receiving end of your awful service or your your fantastic service. And the problem is that most organizations and most individuals are afraid to be that vulnerable, to invite a kick in. So again, I think this is something that you need to look at in the recruitment process. I think you need to invite people who have different opinions to you, who are not afraid to roll up their sleeves and get into a knockdown fight. And it, it doesn't mean that it becomes personal, but what it does mean is that you thrash it out and you, you're not afraid to confront the, uh, the elephant in the room. But again, I think there is this corporate cowardice because it's, oh, well, let's not rock the boat. But I think all you're doing there is you're just laying the seat or uh, sowing the seeds for your own destruction. I know in your research you've come up with this wonderful formula which is c s equals e x plus Co over CX so let's explain what that is so we'll go we'll go to the bloke in the room Matt what does that formula stand for
2: well so it's a combination of a couple of different things that we saw so we actually had one customer say that you know customer success now is being defined as customer outcome over customer experiences where outcomes are way heavier than experiences so that Combined with the notion of we also heard employee experience mentioned multiple times in the research and then the the research that we just conducted with Forbes showing that employee experience first is the correct step in the equation, driving within CX, equaling revenue. So that's essentially what we've seen as, as the formula. The formula for increased customer success is focusing on your employees first, making sure that we have a dialed in employee experience. And how we define employee experience is not just bagels in the break room. It's making sure that they have the tooling and making sure that it's just as convenient for them to do their job as it is for the person to do business with us, and then making sure that we as an organization are focused on delivering that outcome that we've promised, and then that we're really using very specific experiences to achieve that outcome. And When that is the formula that the organization uses, that's the greatest revenue potential.
0: So let uh, Karen let me ask you this is it possible to leapfrog straight to outcomes without doing the other bits
1: Oh Matt and I have had this debate so many times is it possible actually I'd be curious to put that out to our audience that's watching and listening today because if you have the choice to design from scratch what would happen if you could start there what would happen if you could leapfrog these intermediary steps and You know, we think about it as, you know, technical debt in our world, but how would you overcome, you know, these legacy metrics that maybe are not pointing you in the direction of action and having true insight that moves at the speed of relevance. So I'm a proponent for it's possible. So I I would love it if someone on the call wants to tell us that they've done that already. Um, But it's certainly something that we like to put out when we're having a conversation with an organization, especially that's either trying to bring a new product or, or go to market model. Forward, uh, trying to pivot into going in a new direction, it's a great opportunity to consider
2: could we just start there?
0: And Matt, your thoughts? I'm somewhere in the middle.
2: Uh, I I have a hard time thinking that it can be completely leapfrogged just because experiences and outcomes are directly linked together. One needs the other because outcome is the goal, experience is the method. So, as long as we understand that outcomes require experiences, and as long as the organization understands they're both required, Um, and they're both need to be focused, just how we use them and how we look at them changes, I think that it can be done. So I think we can get to a faster outcome much quicker. And here's, I think, the better question that we should ask. It's not, can we leapfrog the outcomes, but can we reduce the time that it takes us to get to these progressive ideas inside the business much quicker? So here's what we know as a baseline. Some of these organizations have been going down this path for upwards of six years. So if you can essentially just get to a, a better place in one to two years where you are focused on experiences and understand that that is important, but outcomes are really the ultimate metric, then you will have leapfrog, not because you essentially just focus on outcomes, but because you're able to do both of them together in a shorter time frame. So I think that's probably what I'd suggest for companies to think about is they're linked together. Um, so how do we really bring that message into the organization? And that's the progressive leapfrogging of let's bring them together, not just one or just the other.
1: Maybe it's about point of entry, right? I mean, are you thinking, you know, outside in, right? Is it outcome at first and then solve that for customer experience, employee experience? Maybe it's about point yeah, and of we,
2: And we did hear that from the research. Remember we did hear from one organization, they said, you know, what we start with is the perfect order and work our way back because that is the, the perfect order is the outcome that the individual is expecting at that moment. We then take that as the what I would say like epicenter of the experience and then start to remove friction as they go concentric circles away from that, right? Because the closer you are to that that core transaction, the more impactful those experiences are. Um so that was kind of the method that they worked on. So I think there's lots of different processes to get there. I just don't want people to walk away from this conversation thinking experiences don't matter because they do. Okay. So it's it's
0: clear experience matters, but in the end of the day, what the customer is paying for and renting your product or your service for are the outcomes. And um, again, we have to understand that sometimes customers can be massively happy. So if I'm driving my Audi, uh, let's say I've got um, an Audi R8 and it's a great fun car. It's fast, it's sexy, it makes that wonderful noise. But and I'm using it all the time, it, you know, to go, go down the uh, shops to buy a loaf of bread. I use this cup. I love it that much. But now all of a sudden, my parents are sick. And my utilization is through the roof. My adoption is through the roof. And I love it to bits. But now my circumstances have changed. And so now I've got to get something that's high. It's got four doors and isn't going to terrify my mother. So all of a sudden, I'm a happy customer. And unless I, unless you have been listening to me, I could easily be uh, ditching you as uh, my provider. Now, this is where I think your customer success planner really comes into their own, but also the listening program. And in your research, you have this uh, six or seven steps, six steps around developing the customer success planning role. Do you mind talking us through that, Karen?
1: Well, you know, it begins with, executive prioritization that it matters, right? I mean, I think that's the first and most critical step that we saw in all of these organizational transformations and new roles is, you know, the failure to launch moment is lack of a a visible, vocal executive sponsorship, you know, with anything tied to listening to customers, creating new roles, business pivots, et cetera. You know, the next piece is, Getting crystal clear about, you know, the problem you're trying to solve. You can't put that person in place as the be all end all to need to solve every single problem, right? It, it's kind of like if you're a carpenter and, and you only have a hammer, everything looks like a nail, right? You've got to get crystal clear on what that person is going to do, how they're going to fit, and what customer segments you're going to apply them towards. Right for for the organizations we had the conversation with that are that are starting to put this role in place, they're being very specific about the customer segment that they're applying it to. Matt, what would you add on for the next steps?
2: Yeah, the next are really um, reduce friction of you know you have this individual and that individual is powerful, but there's also some friction they can't remove that the organization is going to have to remove for them. So such as if you know that your technology is going to require three pieces of integration. If you don't have those integrations pre-built, that's friction that's really going to cause friction in the relationship. And that's not friction that success manager can can take on. Um, so we need to make sure we reduce that friction from an organizational standpoint next. After that, we then need to make sure that we create guides for this person to follow. So we talked about employee experience. This is really where we start to get into thinking about microservices, thinking about do we need to have micro-skilling involved in these microservices? And then these guides really are there to design and guide that employee to the next best action that the customer needs to take. And if you want to get really crazy and far out, those guides can be tied to maturity models. So each next step is based on where the person currently is in their life cycle. And so it's very personal. Past that, if we need to set milestones. So we now need to then break down, okay, based on the maturity of where you are as a customer and based on the outcomes we know you want to achieve. Here are the many smaller milestones we need to reach. And then those then become the functional working document of how do we know when to follow up? What are we going to follow up? And then those can become the basis for those one-page business plans. And then the last thing is to remember that we need to allow these um, customer success planners to provide choice. Because going back to that notion of co-creation, here's what we heard. We heard when the success planner gives almost a menu list to the customer and says, you tell me what outcomes you want. And, you know, back to the, you know, the old thing we know, if you can have it fast, you can have it accurate or you can have it now. Right. So it's like, you know, which one do you want? Do you want it fast? Do you want it you know, best? Do you want it now? So then moving and giving them choice to say, which path do you want to follow? Um, and then that's really what we see is kind of the best combination of kind of how do we start this and then how do we move it forward and progress it to the next
0: level? I had a really fascinating conversation with Patty Hatter of Palo Alto Networks. And one thing she implemented was outcome-based pricing. Mm -hmm. And in Q4, Palo Alto Professional Services grew their sales by 93%. That's so impressive. And that's by listening to what the customer wanted. I think another critical element of this is making sure that members of each different silo are involved in the other team's meetings. One of the things that I've had success with in the past is making sure that other departments are involved in sales meetings. And salespeople, certainly as part of their onboarding and on a fairly frequent basis, actually get to uh, be the product of the work that they have sold. So in a hotel, they have to spend time with housekeeping. They have to spend time with the food and beverage. They have to spend time in front of office. They have to spend time in the back office uh, taking inquiries. All of these different departments need to work together. Because at the end of the day, we forget very often that we exist because of the customer, not in spite of them. They're not there as this inconvenience. Without the customer, your business doesn't survive. You no longer have uh, income. Therefore, you don't have a mortgage. You're homeless. So, we, we really have to make sure that there is this real alignment throughout the teams, really focused on customer outcome. So, Karen, can you talk to me about that the strategy of uh, aligning the teams?
1: Create upside. I mean, the reality is people love to win and people love to have a backstage pass. And what you just referenced there with Patty in the Palo Alto example, who would not want to be a part of? of something that's growing at 93%, right? Who wouldn't want to put their name on the win, quarter. right? Right, in a, in a quarter. So, so think about how to create upside and bring people in on that to win together. I mean, people love to do that, but the other piece is there's some magic to this backstage pass. People love to be invited behind the scenes and then to have the opportunity to help create something that leads to those kinds of results. It's fun to win. It's fun to be in on the secret. It's fun to be the one helping create the future trajectory of the company. So create the upside, make it culturally good to make those adjustments, bring together, you know, the high performing people from different parts of your organization, even if their job isn't core to interfacing directly with the customers and give them a chance to create, give them the mission and give them a chance to help you. I mean, I think back over my career and some of the the worst problem solving I've ever done, you know, even if it involved customers were things I tried to solve on my own or with not enough people participating. So create upside, you know, that's what she did. She's using it certainly as cultural momentum to attack some other areas of the business where transformation is possible using a similar model or, or simply just breaking down silos in the organization so that people work together and get more invested in each other's success.
0: And Matt, uh, one of the things that you wrote in the research is agile isn't optional. Can you go into a little bit of detail about that, please? I think everyone
2: pretty much understands agile is a powerful method. Um, It's a powerful way of working. I think what we've seen in a lot of organizations is the change of really bringing agile out of the IT department and really infusing it in all things. For example, um, one of the world's largest banks took their entire marketing department. Not only are they following agile practices, they're also following agile a structure, Agile organizational structure, which is a pod-based structure around key moments. We understand Agile is important. I think what we realized from our research was we didn't understand where we were in this adoption of Agile. So one of the problems we found was if every department uses Agile, that's good. But the problem became when they had to innovate fast and all and then moved into these concentric circles, they all had different languages, different agile languages, which meant they ended up reverting back to a bad waterfall process. So we know agile is required. I think we now need to start thinking about, do we need to have a centralized agile method so that when we do collaborate internally, we all have the same language that we're using, allowing collaboration to happen faster. So depending on where you are on that spectrum, if you don't use agile, you really don't have a choice. Um, I think a, a simple easy quote is what you need to think about is today is the slowest day and the rate of change that will ever exist in our future. Every day moving past this day, the rate of change only increases meaning the need for Agile only increases. So if you are not Agile, you're not going to be able to pivot fast enough. Just go back to the pandemic. Who are the ones that are thriving? Of course, let's just take out the industries that are obvious. But then look at the organizations across any industry that are thriving. And they're the ones that were able to pivot so fast. And the way they were able to pivot was every one of them will tell you it was Agile methodologies that allowed them to pivot. right? So we need to really understand of, there is no concept. You have to have Agile. You need to embrace it depending on where you are, is either embrace it, make sure it's in every department, and then three, make sure it's a common language.
0: Okay. So common language, make sure that you're all working towards the same intended outcome, which is to give the customer the outcomes that they want. Make sure that you've got consistency. Ensure that everybody is committed and uh, make sure also that as you... Pivot as you modify what you're doing, everybody is kept clearly informed. So there are no surprises, and you're all working toward common purpose. And you have that executive sponsorship to drive it to make sure that if you do hit a roadblock, then you quickly cut through that. Otherwise, the production cycle, the innovation cycle uh, dies a, a, a slow and painful death. And then that sends a horrific message to the customer. Is that fair? That's yeah, Okay. Um, now, something else that you said, which I think is really telling, is people before process. So would you mind uh, elaborating on that, Karen?
1: When you think about the problem that you're trying to solve, it's tempting to jump straight to the process, either putting one in place or simplifying it and taking it away. And the challenge is when we start with process, we start to lose the human aspect of that design and that problem we're trying to solve. And so when I think about starting with people, you know, that speaks to how we listen, but also really the power and the importance of, of user-centered design, right? Of this keeping the humans at the center of the processes and not just jumping straight to the fancy new tool or or the thing that everybody's talking about. You know, it's really understanding what problem we're trying to solve for whom and for what purpose before jumping into the process aspects of doing that. And don't get me wrong, most organizations are very process rich and and ready for a refresh there, but people really need the motivation of, of the people tied to that to really go make progress.
0: I think you touched on something in the research as well that I really liked, which is that each moment must be designed. You need to put a lot of heavy lifting and some serious thought into the design, but also into the iterative improvement. And the people who are experiencing it need to give you feedback, and you can't be wedded to your idea. And you've got to constantly be refining and improving. This is just the whole concept. Albert Einstein said um, that the eighth wonder of the world is compound interest. Those who understand it earn it, and those who don't pay it. And I, I think what you're describing here in terms of Agile is uh, the compound interest of really clear thinking and iterative improvement in collaboration and partnership with everybody who is involved, all the stakeholders, whether they're customers, employees, partners, suppliers, that whole process has to be constantly reviewed. And I I think one of the dangers is after having gone through the misery of putting all this together, uh, you go, we're done. And you're never fixed. I think one of the challenges, I'm talking to one of my tech clients at the moment about getting investment. And they put the willies up, uh, one of the investors, because the the, the techie geek said, oh, it's never finished. That's not the kind of thing the investor or the executives want to hear. (laughs) Uh, But the reality is it is never finished. But you have to pick your moments when you're going to pick the fight uh, and tell people this stuff. So, Let's um, wrap up on uh, this whole process of co-creating with the customer outcomes in mind. Let's delve into those tactics, Matt.
2: Yeah, so I mean, there's lots of tactics. I think the first tactic needs to be the understanding of co-creation is a thing, right? It's a mantra of with not on. Are we working with people in every moment? And when we start to then ask the question of who must we work with, that answer is all stakeholders involved in that moment. That may be customers, that may be partners, that's lots of different internal teams. So we need to make sure, first off, we understand it. And two, that we then have the right people in the room to then co-create. The third, is then, like you said, is just testing. It's don't be married to your ideas. I think another skill that we're going to have to learn moving forward is facilitation. How do we facilitate these events? You know, so we're going to need to have people who are there in those moments. They're going to be able to facilitate this co-creation to get the best outcomes and keep everybody moving and moving forward. Um, so I think it's pretty simple: of do we understand we need to do it, and then two, are we doing it? Past that, in terms of how advanced do we want to get with co-creation, depends on the method and where you are on the customer journey. So if we break this notion of of co-creation out, it's co-creation of everything. So from the very far left, the very awareness, early awareness stage, is it user-generated content? Do we have methods that we are working with our marketplace to co-create to put those messages in the marketplace for us rather than relying on us to do all the message telling and storytelling ourselves? You know, if we start to then look at the sales process and the selling processes, are we co-creating those outcomes with the customer success planner inside of those key moments? Are we bringing everyone together and saying, what do we want to design? What are the outcomes we want? Can we go in delivering those? You know, going to the far end and service and support. You know, do we have methods that we are collaborating with all those stakeholders to help each other out? Really great example is Trailhead, right? You know, we have created a community of our customers to help answer each other's questions. I think the most phenomenal thing about this community is this one simple fact. A quarter of all people in that community have found new jobs. Right, So we have not only helped speed up the ability for them to get the answers they need in a very trusted and scalable way, it's by answering each other's questions, we've created a whole new value, which is helping these people get another job. Now, that pays massive benefits for us in multiple ways. One is, if we help you get a job, that's lifetime branding, right? We don't have to, like, brand ourselves again. We helped you get a job. You remember who those people are. They didn't bring our technology into those organizations. They didn't spend twice as much and stay a customer three times as small, right? So when you start to think about co-creation across the customer journey, it takes on different forms and shapes, but it all starts in the same play. Just a mantra of with, not on. Um, And then from there, it just depends on where you want to use it and how you want to implement it.
0: Well, Mark Schaefer always says that we have to think as the customer, not about them. And that's a big shift. If you don't think as the customer, then you see the customer journey going to McDonald's when they speak, they put the order through the sport box, pay their money, and pick up the toxic food. But the customer journey starts way, way, way before when your ankle biters are screaming, I'm hungry. Then you have to go through the journey where they're saying, are we there yet? I'm hungry. They're fighting. They're punching each other, poking each other in the eye. You get to the queue. There's seven other cars in front. There's this battle on Then You try and take their order. Then they change their mind. Uh, you put the order through. They can't hear it. Then they change their mind again. Meanwhile, they're screaming and fighting. You eventually, I mean, you see it's that whole miserable experience is actually paying your money. And then you pick it up and you think, there's um, you know, seven cars behind me, should I check? Because what if they get it wrong? And often they do. So you check and you're waiting and there's their horns hooting uh, in the background. Then you hand it to them because you dare not, don't wait until you get home. Now you've got milkshake all over your upholstery. You've got a little bit of vomit to deal with. Now you've got indigestion when you get there, and you've got to get rid of the packaging. Um, and we, we have to spend time working with the customer uh, to understand that whole journey. And the one thing that we haven't touched on is the partnership that we have to have with procurement. They've never been my favorite people on the planet as a salesperson, but the reality is they are the ones who are having these grenades lobbed over the fence to them because they get to see all these centers of dissatisfaction. And if you are not aligning with them early, and I think um, that there's a guy called John Bedwani who runs a company called the Database Company over in Australia, and they basically spend two years before an enterprise tries to sell to another enterprise, softening them up like the heavy artillery. And they're engaging with procurement, they're in great engaging with the C suite, with the executive level, with users, with operations, and all of that. So, by the time a sales team actually goes to speak to these people, not only do they understand their strategy, their vision, they have relationships, they've identified what their direction is, what their pain points are, the outcomes that they're looking for, but it's coordinated and They've also partnered up with procurement because procurement, especially in this COVID era, has now got a seat at the table with the C-suite. They are incredibly important. And if we are not partnering with them, I think, particularly if you're selling to mid-market or enterprise, you're effectively only ever going to be picking up the scraps. So let's wrap up on that. So Karen, your thoughts. You don't own
1: customers, you earn them. And to your point you have to do the work, right? Earning that customer and keeping them takes work. And it means understanding that there are now more decision makers in every deal and you need to have an authentic relationship with each one of them. Back to our earlier point, discover the strategy for how to create upside and what successful outcomes look like for each person that's influential in that purchasing decision.
2: Excellent, Matt. I think it just underscores the the concept that we talked about of, you know, if we look at a moment, who are all the stakeholders in that moment? And how do we involve all these people in a co creation? I think all of these kind of flow together of when we're talking about selling into an organization, have we already thought about co creating these moments with that organization well before selling to them? Have we already started to partner with them and bring them into these conversations? And so I think it's the answer is yeah, I agree. It's, you know, make sure that we are focused on all stakeholders in the deal, trying to work with them, um, not on them. I mean, it, the best outcomes come when we do those things.
1: Matt and I, of course, also want to know when we can go on a car trip with you when we're super hungry so we can just live out that wonderful experience together that you've just described. I mean, as much as we've been home, even that's starting to sound good, isn't it, Matt?
2: Yeah, I was like, I I could go for a McDonald's and a drive with a car for some people. That'd be a fun. It's it's a novel experience in this world because I haven't done it in a long time. I, I haven't been in a car with other people.
0: Okay, well, look, we've got to wrap up now. This has been incredibly insightful. For anyone who wants the research, if you DM me, I'll be putting it up when uh, I publish this on uh, LinkedIn and on the Inquisitor podcast, and I'll uh, give you an opportunity to download Karen and Matt's uh, research. There's a PowerPoint, it's about 25 slides. It also, Chris, gives you that formula so don't panic. I can't. Unfortunately, I can't put comments on to LinkedIn. So uh, my bad. But tell me this: one blind spot that you have to watch for, Karen. Lost customers. And Matt,
2: can learn, yeah. One blind spot you have to look for. Yeah. I think that's executive buy-in. I mean, if if we go back to all of these things. If, you know, everyone listening to this call is like, Yeah, let's go do this. And then you try to go do that, but you don't have that executive buy in. That's the blind spot. It's don't think that you can do all of these massive changes without full executive buy
0: in. Okay. And how can people get hold of you, Karen?
1: Uh, on Twitter at Karen Manji or on LinkedIn.
0: And Matt?
2: I'm on Twitter at M Sweezy and on LinkedIn at Matthew Sweezy.
0: And if you haven't read Karen's book, Listen Up, or Matt's book, The Context Marketing Revolution, you are missing out. Both of them are brilliant and well worth reading. And in fact, Mark Schenker, who is one of my heroes in marketing, said if there's one book that you have to read, it's Mark's book, The Context Marketing Revolution. So guys, thank you so much. And I genuinely appreciate you coming on. Don't suppose you'd be willing to come back?
1: yes. Thank you.
0: Excellent. So this is Marcus Kauke signing off once again from the Inquisitor podcast. If you've enjoyed the conversation and found it insightful, then please like, comment, share, and subscribe. If you want to get hold of me, my email address is marcus at laughsiphonlast.com or direct message me through LinkedIn. And if you think you'd be a good guest or you know someone who would be, then please connect us. I'm always looking for interesting guests. And a huge thank you once again to Karen and Matt. You're welcome. Thank you. And a huge thank you to all of you for listening, and especially thank you for voting for me and the Inquisitor podcast. We are now finalists in the Top Sales World Best Sales podcast for 2020. So I'm genuinely delighted and extremely grateful. In the meantime, stay safe and happy selling. Bye-bye.